This episode's part of a special feature series on New York City and is a co-presentation with the Museum of the City of New York with generous support from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Find us at yourhometown.org or on your favorite podcast app. I watch the second plane come and go into the second building. Then the buildings go in and they, they start collapsing. So all of a sudden you saw in the air, all of the debris, you had to close your eyes because if you opened your eyes, something was gonna go in your eyes. There was stuff coming from the windows and it was all over the area. So that's when I ran for my life. And for a split second, I thought to myself, this is how it ends. Where did you grow up? Is a question we're all asked a lot. But the answer is never as simple as a place on a map, is it? It's about the kid inside of us and what happened to them there, before we met the world and the world met us. I'm Kevin Burke, and this is Your Hometown. Many of you probably know my guest, Maria Bartiromo, from the TV shows that she anchors on Fox News and the Fox Business Channel. Or you think you know her. Or maybe you know her from her time covering the news each day, live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, the first reporter ever to stand there, telling us which stocks were up and which were down. As you'll hear in this episode, the old-timers there weren't buying her at first. She wasn't one of them. No, she had the double whammy of being a woman and a reporter who wanted to give us a peek of what was going on down there. But she stuck it out. And somehow, she worked her way into the bloodstream. And not just of investors who trade for a living, but everyday people who thought maybe they could play this game too. Even the punk rock legend, Joey Ramone, of CBGB's fame, heard her so much in his head that he wrote a song about her. this had me wondering, why Maria Bartiromo? I mean, it's not like she came from the world of CEOs. Far from it. Back in the 1970s and early 1980s, she was a kid growing up in Bay Ridge in Diker Heights, Brooklyn, which was about seven miles, but really a world away from Wall Street. And turns out her foundation in life wasn't ticker tape, but the coat check at her father's restaurant, the Rex Manor. And her mother wasn't a lady who lunched. She worked two jobs, and, well, you'll see. Sometimes it's the quiet parent, the one behind the counter, so to speak, who looms large. So, if that was the world Maria grew up in, their world, how did she, as a kid, leading a fairly sheltered childhood that put work and family and sacrifice and saving and work first, how did she learn what she needed to learn to be able to break through the doors of the stock exchange not that many years later? And if we look deeper, are the things that she absorbed from them what's inside the Maria we see now in the world of cable TV? Now, as you'll hear, when we spoke, it was right after her morning newscast, and there was the occasional email and cell phone bing as a reminder of how plugged in she has to be. For me, the most natural place for us to start our exploration of Maria's hometown wasn't in her family's home address in Brooklyn, but their essential home. The restaurant. Um, 
the Rex Manor was really old school. So it was this big building on 60th Street and 11th Avenue in Brooklyn. You know, my grandfather founded the restaurant, built it. And by the way, he really did build it with his bare hands because him and his cousin uh, built the Rex. They were bricklayers in Italy. They were construction workers. And so he ran the restaurant, my grandfather, Carmine, and his partner, Victor, and then obviously passed it on to my dad. Everybody loved him because he was such an easygoing guy. I mean, you came to the Rex, you could be sure he was sending you over drinks, wine, dessert. You know, my whole family worked there. So I saw my mom as a hostess, um, my sister as a hostess, my brother as a waiter, and they were all interacting. And at the end of the day, we wanted the Rex to be the best place. We wanted it to be the most popular, the most delicious. And so everything we did reflected on that. We were the family behind the wreck. So people knew that, you know, my dad was the owner and, you know, I, I, I had my heart there. So, and when you walked in the regular restaurant, it was just a small room. It was the capacity of about 60 people and people would come. We had real regulars, loyalists coming for dinner. Then you walk through the hallway and you get to a big bar area. And the bar area was totally old school. It was a big bar. Um, it had a pizza oven to the left. And people would come, have a drink at the bar and order a pizza. The windows were um, in the bar area and they were like six oval circles across the, uh, the, the top of the wall. And then you keep going and you walk through the bar and you get to the catering hall. And we had two rooms, one upstairs, one downstairs. The upstairs room was the bigger room. It fed about 170 people. And then downstairs was about 120 people. I was the co-check girl and my co-check room was on the bottom floor right next to the smaller uh, dining, uh, this, the smaller party room. As she was talking, I pictured all the weddings she must have worked when she was growing up. A kid in an adult world. Their food, their stories, their music playing. I'm imagining Bobby Darren, Frank Sinatra, Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons. My eyes have told you We had a night on Wednesday nights, and it was called, it was so cute, it was called um, Parents Without Partners. And you <laughs> bought a ticket for that. My mom would take the tickets. Mm -hmm. And then we had a singer, we had a band. And so it was, a, it was an opportunity for anyone who was, you know, without a partner, divorced or widowed, and they had kids to meet others. It was uh, Parents Without Partners Night at, at the Rex. It was it's just so, you know, it was really fascinating. Right off the bat, as a co-check person, you recognize that you have in your possession other people's items. And you have to cherish that, respect that, take care of that. And I remember people bringing in like really expensive coats, fur coats. And as a little girl, I would just be like, wow, you know, this, I, I, this, is, I, this is really important. I better be careful with this and I better, you know, handle it with care. And I, and I have a sign, which I actually framed. It's in my study and in my home. And the, the sign says 50 cents a coat, please pay in advance.
lot of people would give me a dollar and I would keep the 50 cents. So I always kept track of my tips, how much I made. And it also got me into a mindset of organizing my own little personal budget because I knew, you know, what, what, what was mine and, you know, how I could, um, allocate my money at the end of the night because it was a certain amount of coats. They were 50 cents each at the end of the night, you had a tally and you know, the remainder was, was my tips that I kept. So thinking about a different kind of tip, which is information. I'm wondering how working in that job plugged you into what was happening in your neighborhood, who the players were. It's kind of the world of Brooklyn society. Well, it's interesting because I was able to, you know, hear conversations and see what people and listen to what people were talking about. But I think mostly, um, even more than understanding what was going on in the community, it forced me to be in a service position. It forced me to understand what it would take to serve a customer and not just handling their coat and their umbrella with care, but also the niceties that go along with that and the respect, the thank yous and the please um, for the customer. My dad always put the customer first. Like I said, he would send over free stuff to people who came in. If it was your first time at the restaurant, you can expect he was going to send you dessert. That's what work is. You are serving someone else. So whether it's someone getting your coat or you know, viewers of a, of a television show, which is what I'm doing now. It was right. a real education in, in, in that regard. Also just seeing the, the way people dress, what they were talking about, were they, you know, were they elaborate? Were they you know, a little fancy or not? That also gave you a tone of how society and, and people were, were behaving and thinking about. Yeah, and I also imagine that you had to learn in a certain way to talk to people in that job and all kinds of people, really important moments of their lives, weddings, funeral repasts, graduations, bar mitzvahs, baptisms. Yeah, and I was able to really meet people and know them and get to know them a little, even in that night, to hear their stories about graduation and understand who was important to those people and seeing the family dynamics. You know, oftentimes people would engage me as well. I was um, a student and oftentimes what I would do is I would bring all my homework to the coat room and I would take in all the coats. And then for the couple of hours while the party was on, I was doing my homework and they would say, oh, what are you reading there? And, you know, you know, I, I think a child learns that at home. Oftentimes they watch their parents, they watch mm -hmm. their, you know, their, their family members here. I was forced to engage. And I think that in and of itself was an incredible confidence booster. And given the profile of the, of the place, where did the Rex put you in standing with your peers in the neighborhood, your friends? I imagine everyone knew the place. Um, well, I, you know, I wasn't the most popular girl. I mean, my, my friends, I have, I was in um, a group of girls in high school and uh, I think others were, were sort of more out there than I was. I was always a family girl. Uh, and I think that people knew um, Marie's father owns the Rex, you know, um, that's her family business. And oftentimes we would, as a young girl, we would play hide and seek. We called it manhunt on the block on 84th street in, in Diker Heights. Uh -huh. Um, 
And um, my dad would come home, drive home, and all the boys on the block would say, oh, my God, Vinny's home. Do you think he has pizza? And sure enough, my dad would bring pizzas home for the whole block and just, you know, give them out. And everybody was having pizza. So my, the, the block and the neighborhood loved my dad. Everybody thought that he was like their father because he loved his family, worked incredibly hard. The only way we saw my father regularly was at the Rex because he was always working at the Rex. So we had to spend all holidays there and wow. work together. Mondays, the restaurant was closed. So my dad would go on Mondays and do the books. And as a girl, I remember going with him and just, you know, sliding all over the floors and loving the fact that the restaurant <laughs> was closed. And I, you know, I had my access to it everywhere he went. He took me with him because he was babysitting, I think. And he had to go to the banks. I would wait in the car or I would <laughs> go with him. And certainly one of the most important uh, recollections I have is doing the books with my father and seeing how he had his, he had his calculator sitting there as a gigantic calculator. He had this gigantic checkbook and he was going through the books in terms of, you know, what kind of revenue they raised that week, where they came out. Um, and, and it was all very organized. And my dad had very clear penmanship, I remember. And that too impacted me. All of these mm. things really impacted me and gave me an understanding, even if I didn't know really, you know, balance sheet versus cash flow statement as a, as a girl, I didn't understand any of that. I did see the organization and the care that he took with just organizing what he called the books. They used to tell me I was building a dream with peace and glory ahead. Why should I be standing in line just waiting for bread? My parents are students of the Depression. You know, my, my, my mother uh, and father grew up, they were born in 1932, so they grew up um, saving things because they remember when they were growing up, their, their parents didn't have anything and yeah. they had to save everything and eat every last morsel. And so being a student and, you know, an observer and a participant of the depression and after the depression, like my parents were, was also incredibly impactful for them, which they passed that on to me. And that's why I have always, you know, learned and known from my parents to save, 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 you know, save your pennies. Um, these were lessons that, you know, that, that were dropped on me every day at the Rex, certainly. And also just being a, being a young person in, in Brooklyn, I remember the ice cream truck used to come down the block when I was five years old. And I would say to my mom, can I get a cone? And she would say, well, you can get it, but how will you pay for it? Do you have any change? <laughs> And so little by little, I started, yeah. anybody gives me a quarter, a nickel, whatever, I'm putting it in my jar and I'm saving so that I know that when the ice cream man comes, I can buy my own cone. My mom worked at OTB, believe it or not, off track betting. Mm -hmm. And um, I was a little, I was a young girl in, in high school. I had my Catholic uh, school uniform on. I would take the bus from Fontbonne Hall Academy, which was my high school, to 86th Street, where my mom worked at OTB, I would go in, it was horrible, smoke filled. They would let me buzz me in the back and I would say hi to her um, when she was on her break. And then I would walk home because we lived right over there. She was just a few blocks from, from our house. So my point is, is my whole life from a very young age, I watched my dad in the kitchen with a bandana around his head, sweating, making sure that the food was perfect. And, 
to my mom working hard at OTB. And then whenever my dad needed her, pitching in at the Rex as well. And so these were such powerful, powerful, um, you know, stories for me that impacted me so much as and shaped me. What was the flip side of the hard work in terms of what you couldn't do, in terms of the opportunity cost of that sort of really, really hard work ethic? Well, you know, it's, that's the thing. I mean, I, you know, I grew up middle-class neighborhood, you know, you know, uh, working incredibly hard. And I don't think I've, I, I missed anything. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that it cost me anything. I, I think that the hard work is only you know, proven to have been exactly what I should have been doing. <laughs> and so I, you know, I can't, I mean, sure, other families probably were together every night for dinner. We weren't. Um, so maybe that's something that, mm -hmm. you know, we gave up. There were different schedules. We had to adhere and adapt to my parents' schedules. Um, I know that every year my parents took us to uh, a resort in upstate New York to the Catskills and we had a week together. And so I, I, you know, in retrospect, I can't say that, well, because we worked so hard and because my, my family, you know, uh, operated this restaurant and worked hard at it, we, we, we missed something. Cause mm -hmm. I don't see it that way at all. I'm so grateful that yeah. I've had this up, upbringing. With your father's story, was it always the plan for him to take over the restaurant from his father? And the, I know that he wasn't the oldest son. So I don't think that it was a plan gotcha. in place because my grandfather had other sons. You know, there was my father, Vincent, there was Carmine, there was Pete, and then there was Angela, his sister. Um, but, you know, they didn't, they weren't as active in the restaurant. So it was clear that my dad had a knack for the restaurant business, was a, an incredible chef. And so he worked hardest and closest with his father so it was natural that he would take it over i saw an article in the brooklyn eagle this is from 53 i think where your father was reported on in the army studying or learning to be a cook at fort meade in maryland my dad would just go nuts right now that you just raised this here's what happened my my father's entire family um served our country and my grandfather carmine uh he came to this country and so the first thing that he did was leave again and go fight in world war one for the allies after world war one ended he came back at, to america and settled in brooklyn and then he built the restaurant um, then he had uh four sons um, my father's oldest son was killed in World War II in Burma. Carmine, I think that um, he was in World War II and he actually landed with the Allies in Omaha Beach. They called it Bloody Omaha and he survived. Wow. He's a real war hero. And wow. then um, when, when my dad, when my dad uh, entered for the Korean War, um, they saw that my family had had so many of, you know, his brothers serving our country that they said to my father look we know that you know we, we, your father your father is working in the restaurant building a restaurant we want you to do this at fort meade and so he used to cook for the entire mess hall at fort meade in virginia during the korean war and even there everybody loved my dad he was cooking for them so He's done a lot of different things in the service, but you're right. In Fort Meade, he was learning to cook and learning to be uh, the lead chef in the mess hall and did that. And I'm so proud of him for that. Killing and cutting off large forces of Japanese in Burma's interior, the combined Allied armies in Southeast Asia are stepping up the tempo of battle 
as this global war enters its most intense phase. Looking into that record, the oldest brother, Pasquale, or Patrick, you can follow that story in the Brooklyn Eagle. It's reported that he's missing and missing in action in Burma, uh, July 44. And your family is a gold star family. And from what I could tell, his remains were never found. So he's, he was in Merrill's Marauders and his body was never brought back. So I was thinking about, you know, your parents and what they'd been through and the depression and the war. You know, those shadows, in a way, they're a part of that backstory that you're coming into as a kid born in the late 60s. You know, that's backstory. But it's still, it's part of the family narrative. I can't tell you how grateful I am that you've done all this research and you know about my family because I've never actually ever spoken about my family being a gold star family, that I, I, we, we never found the remains of my uncle. And so I, I'm really grateful that you know all of that. The ownership of the Rex changed hands in 84, and I noticed that was the same year that your grandfather, Carmine, passed away. And tell me about that time. That must have been very tumultuous and just, you know, the poignancy of that. So take us back to there, if you can, and that experience of seeing it change hands. Um, Look, the the year that I had my Sweet 16 and then the the next year um, when my grandfather died and we we sold the Rex was a really... um, uncertain time for our family because remember you've got two partners it was uh victor brienza and and vinnie bartiromo and they own this restaurant that their their fathers passed on and now it's time that they're aging now victor's son didn't want it and my father's my brother pat also had his own career. So there's a decision to be made about selling it. And it was really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think we were all mixed about it. I mean, I was really too young to understand. And I remember those final days when we were walking through the restaurant saying, okay, we're selling it. You know, is there any other personal items that you, uh, that you, that you are going to be taking with you? And it was, it was so sad because it was a huge decision to sell the Rex. And I know that my dad didn't even want to drive past 60th and 11th Avenue anymore because it was so sad and hard to see that the the huge corner of that corner in Brooklyn, which we own. And built, your family built it, you said. Yeah, but you know, nobody in my family was willing to go into the restaurant business. Certainly not after seeing my dad work incredibly hard. It was his whole life. And we all had other, I was too young, but my brother certainly had another career. Um, After that, my dad, so after my dad sold the Rex, he opened another restaurant in Long Island called Lobster Time. And then he stole that a few years later, but um, we had these huge lobster tanks, but it just goes to show you that he just wasn't finished yet. And that's how uncertain and that's how questionable it was that we weren't sure what to do. We couldn't come to an agreement, I guess, on who would run it who was buying it, you know, if it was in the family, it would be, it would be confusing and, and tangled up. So we decided to make a clean break and just sell it. So many parties at the time closed with Donna Summer's last dance. 
And I wanted to talk to Maria about the closing of the Rex and that chapter in her life. I think one of the features of living in New York is creative destruction. I mean, New York is, is, is sort of the most exquisite example of that in, in our country, perhaps, which is constant change, the old kind of being uprooted for the new, and it's something you see on the front lines every day reporting on business. And I was thinking about the fact that you have it, and you have this kind of own story in your family of the building of a business and the selling of a business, and it must give you a certain sensitivity to both the excitement of change, but also the wistfulness of when things pass away. You know, like Lord and Taylor or Century 21. You, you lived it. It's the end of an era. Another New York institution shutting its doors. Century 21 announced it will file for bankruptcy and close all of its remaining stores. The store is so New York. We've been shopping here for decades, it feels like. You mentioned Century 21. I also grew up with Century 21. I love Century 21. Yeah, me too. As a girl, I would go to Century's every day. I got everything there. It was in Brooklyn on 86th Street, not far from my house. And I was really heartbroken when that store declared bankruptcy because it's not just a store. The Rex wasn't just a restaurant and a business. The Rex, for me, was my life. And, you know... When I would go out with girlfriends, I couldn't do it until I gave the coats back. And um, it was a loss. It was a really big void when we sold the Rex. It was very sad. I mean, I, you know, was born into the Rex. And so my entire life, that's, that's all I knew in terms of uh, work and, and family importance. This was the glue. And so I guess school... Friends, you know, um, also became important influences for me. In high school, I had a small group of, of girlfriends and, and um, boyfriends. And, and, and that was, that's also incredibly important in terms of shaping you. But we, because I went to Fontbon Hall, we were always on in Bay Ridge on 3rd Avenue. It was a very small, close-knit group. Um, and I guess... Um, what can you say? Family. We're, I was very close with my family and friends is what helps you um, get to the next bridge. But I definitely do remember a void in my life when we sold the racks, a big one. And you mentioned your mom worked at the OTB, which is on 86 and 5th. And what's interesting is that the OTBs at that time weren't that old. I mean, they came into New York in the, in the early 70s as a way for the state to try to wrestle control of gambling away from the bookmakers. And my, my father-in-law, who, who's still with us, he's in 91, and he grew up on Henry Street and, and, and uh, in Carroll Gardens, the, the OTB on Court Street was his hangout. And my wife still remembers, as a kid, going to tell him dinner was ready there, going to ask him for candy money there. And she describes walking in and scurrying through a smoke-filled room that you could cut with a knife. And just a lot of old-timers, a lot of older men hanging out, betting on horses. Go on the train. Go on the train. 
Your mom is working there as a teller, and then eventually you worked there in college. And I'm wondering, what are your distinct memories of OTB and how that also is a piece of this puzzle of your coming of age years and what that showed you about humanity? Well, it totally was. I mean, it was definitely part of my coming of age. You're right about the smoke-filled rooms. I mean, at that point, we did not have the education that we have today as far as smoking causes cancer. And, you know, my mom was behind the window. My mom never smoked a cigarette in her life. My mother, my mom never gambled. Um, hmm. But the excitement of the races being on and people betting on them, um, it, it got her going. And I definitely think that that is another reason I ended up going down to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and thriving in that kind of environment. I got that from my mom. I remember I used to go to the track with my mother and father. We would go to Belmont mm -hmm. and um, one other track. And it was so much fun sitting there, having dinner, watching the horses go around. Um, look, I think OTB was a place, um, a, a moment in time where you're right. People went there, they hung out, they watched the, they watched the races. Um, I, as a little girl, was intimidated by it. Um, I did go because I know that my mom was there. Like if I needed to pick up the keys or I just wanted to check in with her just to tell her that I was home and I was walking home. Remember, at that time, my mom didn't have a nanny. My mom didn't have people who, you know, helped her at all. She worked two jobs. My dad ran a restaurant and they raised three kids. That's it. I mean, there wasn't, you know, I was... Uh, you know, so I would, after high school, go to OTB, check in with her. They would buzz me in the back. She would take a break off the window. I would speak to her for five minutes, tell her, you know, school was fine. I'm going to go home. I'll see you at six. She would come home. My vision of my mom always was her walking up 84th Street in Br Brooklyn with her hands full of packages, groceries. She worked the full day, then went shopping for the family, then came home, cooked dinner, raised kids. And it was, and, and by the way, not even a peep of complaining. In fact, even in later years, if I were to ever complain about work, I would say, oh my God, I'm working so hard. She would say always the same thing to me. And I'll never forget this quote. She says to me, Maria, come on, you're not chopping wood. And I would say, yeah, you're right. I'm not chopping wood. Okay. And so it was never complaining. It was just do it, get it done, get it done right. And um, so OTB played a big role in my life. And it was a great job because the salary was great. I think it was like at the time, I don't know, $13 an hour or something nuts that I remember I made when I worked there over the summers. Yeah. I worked on Saturdays in the, in the summer to make extra money. My mom had a, she got a pension. My mom never went to college. So she created this opportunity for herself and she worked there and, you know, got a pension and made a great salary and was able to raise kids, pay for their weddings, pay for their college. Um, her and my dad together, they did an incredible job. As the baby in the family, you have an older brother and sister. Um, what were the expectations of you from your parents growing up for your future? Well, I mean, I think by the time you get to the third child, you're not as... Um, you're not as nervous about certain things. You're a little more casual. You're a little more um, accepting to what kids may or may not do. And so I think that was the case for me as well. Um, I don't know that my mom ever put any you know, pressure on me to 
have any expectations in terms of what I was doing. I, I remember when I was in college at NYU, actually. So this was, I was an adult at this point. My mm -hmm, mom said mm -hmm. to me, I think you should try journalism. I think you would be good at it. And I hadn't, and I hadn't taken any journalism. Um, but I was a ham and I always, you know, she always pushed us forward. She always pushed mm -hmm. us out. I remember we used to go to Villa Balieri in this in the summers and every week there was a, a contest on stage and my mother would just always push me out on stage. And it was like, for example, one year I remember she said, oh, don't worry, we'll put a, a great costume together. We had no costume, but she had these um she had these like tails that looked like uh hair and she she snapped those on my waist and then she <laughs> gave me a hat i mean there was no it, i don't even know what i was but she said just go out there and sing it and so my mom said to me you should take journalism i think you'd be good at it and at this point i had only taken economics i had taken statistics and econ one two and three and i just was doing well at it and i just figured well i'm doing well at that subject i'll just keep doing it um, and I'll make that my major. But then I took journalism and I absolutely loved it, fell for it incredibly and changed my major. And so again, that was my mom's influence in telling me, try broadcasting, you, you might be good at it. And what's interesting also the timing is because you mentioned earlier that the Rex was sold when you were 16, that was taken off the table, even if, you, even if your father didn't want it for you or did want it for you, it was taken off the table. You're right. There wasn't any attachments in terms of that. I had to deal with the restaurant because this is a family business that I would have to ultimately run. And, and I know that, you know, I don't know if that was by design. I was too young to actually say, well, wait a minute, dad, I want to run this. Don't, don't sell it. I was 16 years old from a very early age. I knew that I could shoot. I, I used to say, you know, shoot for the moon, because even if you miss, you'll land amongst the stars. And so I knew that I could shoot for the moon because I had this unit of people around me who loved me, my family, and who was going to be helping me succeed. Were there things when you came to NYU and then eventually settled in Manhattan that you wanted to leave behind in Bay Ridge? And what were the things that you wanted to bring with you? Well, you know, it's funny when you first start out, I think you you think that you need to be changing everything to be better and to be a professional and to not, you know, think that you're that girl who grew up on, you know, on 84th Street. And I think um, when I first started going on air, I felt that I needed to make sure to speak perfectly and correctly. So I started I started training with voice coaches because I wanted to leave my Brooklyn accent behind. I never actually left it behind because it comes out still every once in a while. Um, but I think initially I thought, well, you have to be perfect and you have to be, you know, this cookie cutter person that you see on TV and that's what I need to do. And now after 30 years of working, I can honestly say that's not true. You need to be authentic and you need to be yourself. And that's what resonates. Being herself became Maria's calling card, a kind of authenticity that was rooted in her hometown in Brooklyn. And even though she'd never lived there again, she imported its values to Wall Street, her launching pad to the world of cable news. Thinking about her move out of the neighborhood, I wondered how she sees her life in the context of the other kids she grew up around, especially those who stayed. And in terms of your, your, the world that you emerged from in Bay Ridge and your friends that you had, how, how different did your life become from there? 
I think many of my friends from Brooklyn did stay in Brooklyn. Um, I remember as a child, many of those girls that I'm telling you about right now seem to have everything. Uh, my one best friend, you know, she was going on trips all over the place. She was going out wherever she wanted. And I remember being very upset about the fact that I couldn't do what she was doing because I didn't have the money. And um, I used to say to my mother, why can't I go here and there and there where she's going? And she said, because you can't afford it. We can't afford it. That's not what you're spending your money on. You're doing, you know, you're going to school, you, you, you can go skating from time to time and you can, you know, uh, maybe, you know, go and, and watch a movie, but you're not going to go out. My mother was always very afraid of safety. And I think this happens to speak to her as a student and a child of the depression. Yeah. She did not allow us to go anywhere. I was not allowed to take car service. At the time, it was called car service. Now we have Ubers and all this stuff. But my, my friends would take car service everywhere. And my mother was like, you're not getting in this car. I don't even know who's driving. So all of this stuff did keep me somewhat sheltered. And then in my time, you know, in, in terms of being sheltered, all I did was work. So I was always saving my money. And then after after high school, after college, when I started turning that into looking for internships, looking for a first job, my other friends didn't. And so while they had everything during high school, things reversed later on because at that time, then I was uh, better positioned to get a job that I was pursuing. Did you notice there was Maria's mother again with her day-to-day -day yeses and nos, the sheltering one, the one with the encouraging shove, the one with the sobering reality checks that add up to a view of the world and how to survive in it and thrive on the biggest stages. Even if Maria's mother never stood in them herself, her daughter would with all that she'd shown her and taught her growing up in Brooklyn. I love it. So there she is virtually ringing in the bell. There's Maria. And the opening bell has rung on Wall Street. And, and Maria has done this before, but this is an incredibly special day for her. 25 years in the business. One thing that's fascinating about you, of course, is that you were the very first person to report from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange uh, in the 90s, which I checked was about, I think it's about seven miles from your, where you grew up. Uh, to, but, but a world away in certain ways. Um, and just looking at everything we've talked about, why do you think it was you? I did have a certain um, toughness, I think. Um, knowing that, you know, coming from Brooklyn and having to sort of make my own way and, and doing that by working hard, going to NYU, just being a New Yorker, um, I did have a, a little toughness and sort of, you know, um, strength and confidence to me. Um, it's funny because when I got to CNN, I was working at CNN Business News, and that's really the first time I went to the New York Stock Exchange. I was a production assistant, and I was a PA for uh, Beverly Shook. And Beverly Shook was the woman who would do news reports from the New York Stock Exchange. It wasn't on the floor, but it was in an office, and I was her producer or her PA. So there was that little familiarity. Then when I got to CNBC and we uh, were coming up with this new show, we wanted to call it Squawk Box. We wanted to be different. Um, I guess it was first Dick Grasso who wanted to do something different and wanted to d demystify what was going on there. And then um, 
I was I, I I think it was me because I was the Wall Street reporter first of all, but I but I think it was something else. I think that it was also that I had a little bit of an edge, and I think you needed that to you know to um, to to get through the New York Stock Exchange. It was it was a moment in time where it was it was tough. It was all men. Um, I also did have a great break in that many people on the floor knew that my father owned the Rex because people would go from the New York Stock Exchange to the Rex to get calzones and pizza. And then there was this guy, Tony Corso, who grew up down the block from me. His daughter was my best friend in Brooklyn. She grew, she, she and I grew up together. Um, and Stephanie and I, um, we were best friends. And when I got down to the stock, and then I sort of lost touch with her when I went to high school and college, certainly. But when I got on the floor, her father was on the floor too. So I did know a few people here and there on the floor, but I don't think that was the reason that, you know, that, that I necessarily got there. It was after mm-hmm. I got there, they knew that I was Vinny's daughter. It's, isn't that one of those remarkable things about New York that you can grow up in a community like Bay Ridge, which in many ways you could describe as a small town, right? It's a small part of New York. And you have to you you go seven miles to the stock exchange, and you're broadcast around the world. But yet, it, ha- it still has that local dimension for you. So many people have to come from far away to New York to make it in certain fields. And you certainly, you know, ha- had a trajectory. But but the very idea that people from the floor could be going to the Rex for calzones. That's unbelievable. I think that's just the luck of me being born, you know, on 84th Street in yeah. Bay Ridge, in you know, it, during a time that the the markets and uh, the individual investor revolution was in its infancy. I was part of it, democratization of information, where people thought, well, I could arm myself with the right information, and I could actually dictate my own fate and invest, and in, you know, and, and I could um, get in enough information to do so. So it was an incredible moment. I remember early in my in my uh, reporting from the New York Stock Exchange, there were some people who did not want me there for sure. And I would battle with, you know, old timers, old timer guys who just didn't want a woman in their face. And they certainly didn't want a reporter knowing what moves they were making. We got us 5,000, we got us 10,000, 5,000, 7, 8. Six for 200, two and eight, sold. Two trades at six. Shears and sells two at six to done. It's six. It's on the and I'm thinking about all the stories you told about growing up, that in certain ways it sounds like that kind of the old timers and sort of the boys club that was there when you started, and it wasn't always welcoming, but then you broke through it. Thinking about the restaurant, but also OTB, you'd been, OTB in particular, you'd been in probably high testosterone places before. I think that's exactly right. You're right. So then by the time I got to, you know, like this Me Too movement, I was like, what? You know, I, it just didn't, it didn't hit me or impact me the way it did elsewhere because I had seen it so many times before in terms of being in high testosterone environments. And I, I held my own and I, I didn't, I, I definitely did not allow anybody to push me around. Standing on the floor of the uh, exchange, but I just came back from uh, outside and I am covered with soot. Basically, I was outside when that third explosion occurred. The whole area turned pitch black and when that third explosion happened. On 9-11, you were reporting on the floor of the exchange that day and ran outside to Broadway and Wall Street. You saw it was happening. You describe it in, in very vivid terms. And I'm, I'm wondering um, what it was like for you to be reporting all day on this world historic event and absorbing what was happening to your hometown. 
It was incredible. I mean, you know, the first plane, obviously, I saw on TV go into the first uh, building. My boss called me. He said, Maria, go outside. Call us in the control room. I said, oh, absolutely. I ran to the corner of Wall Street and Broadway, and I watched the building coming down, watched the building on fire first. And then I called into the show, and I was live on the phone telling, you know, the audience everything I was seeing. It was so scary. There was so much camaraderie. People are sharing cell phones, sharing Blackberries, because everybody needed to tell family and friends that they were okay. And then simply standing there, I watched the second plane come and go into the second building. Then the buildings go in and they, they start collapsing. So all of a sudden you saw in the air, all of the debris, you had to close your eyes because if you opened your eyes, something was gonna go in your eyes. There was stuff coming from the windows and it was all over the area. So that's when I ran for my life. And for a split second, I thought to myself, this is how it ends. Mm. And so then I found a little corner uh, across the street from the New York Stock Exchange, it was the MetLife building. And it was three, three, three steps down, and that was their stairwell into, their, into the building, and I just stayed there uh, because the New York Stock Exchange was all boarded up. I couldn't get back in. And for about 10 minutes, it was pitch black outside. All we could see was smoke. It was in our faces. We were all coughing because there's just such soot and smoke everywhere. All right, Maria Bartiromo, uh, um, a woman was crying in the, in the little corner that I had found. And I'm like, I said, so stop crying. We have to be, you know, we have to be calm and just be together here until we figure out what's going on. And then the security guard, Eric, uh, from the New York Stock Exchange came out and saw me. I was covered in soot. He said, Maria, what are you doing? And I said, I, and the, it was boarded up. He goes, come in. At this point, people are in the New York Stock Exchange. People feel that this is the safest place to be right now because when everyone was outside, there was explosion. There was three explosions. So now the exchange is keeping everyone inside. I'm on the floor uh, with about, I don't know, 100, 200 people right here, and we're just waiting. Um, that's all I can tell you. It's pitch black outside. There's soot falling from the sky. I'm, I don't so know then I, I, I went back into the exchange, and I stayed there all day until 9 o'clock at night. Um, I, I did reports, you know, every few minutes um, about who was accounted for at the exchange, what we knew, you know, what, what had happened. I went outside uh, once with Bob Pisani, my colleague, and we were taking pictures of the debris on the floor. And it was absolutely stunning. It was incredible pictures. And it was a very sad day. I don't think that I thought to myself, oh, my God, what's happening to my world? What's happening to my neighborhood? I just, I was in a state of shock. Yeah. And um, I had a girlfriend, yeah. Jackie Sayre, may she rest in peace. She was my good friend from high school. She happened to be uh, at the Marriott at the top of the tower that day. She was in the restaurant business. She didn't even work there. She worked in Brooklyn and she happened to be there. I mean, what are the odds of getting killed by a terrorist attack? And she did. And so, I mean, it was, you know, it was things like that. Like every day, you know, you would hear, oh, Brian was there. Jackie was there. You know, and so for a, for a couple of weeks, it was all, you know, like such and such is missing. They're looking for her, you know. And, and that was where the focus was. And not necessarily thinking like, wow, look what they've done to my neighborhood. Although it was that too. Um, but it was more of who's accounted for, who's not, who do I know that might have been there that wasn't there. And that, and that went on. For a while, um, I had to go there every day. You know, went back on Monday, September seventeenth, when the markets reopened, and then was there 
every day yeah. for several years. I, I don't know if you could see my jacket and my shoes, but I'm completely covered in white smoke from the explosion, from that third explosion. Maria, do you know what that explosion was? That was about 10, uh, I'd say 15 minutes ago. But do you um, know what caused it? No, I don't. You kept the soot-covered dress that you were wearing the day that you were reporting things changed, it's still in your closet, you still have it. And thinking about what that means to you. It was a, a burgundy uh, suit and I had black patent leather shoes on. And literally black patent leather shoes were full of white soot and they didn't even look black. Um, and I just saved them. I don't know why. I still have them all saved, the shoes and the suit. And um, it was such an incredible day and I was so fil filthy with soot and what, was ha what had occurred as a result of, of, of what came out of that building that I just thought to myself, you know, this is not just any suit. I have to save this. It's, it's just a remembrance of the day that we all endured. Uh, so, yes, I do still have that. You have interviewed everybody, and I'm wondering the things that we've been talking about this morning about your, your childhood and how important it is to you. If you could go back and interview any of the characters in your family or your neighborhood from those years, who, who is one person or a few people that you would just love to be able to sit across the table from and speak to them without limit and just ask them anything? Well, I'd certainly love to speak with my grandmother, Maria Rosalia Moriali, my mother's mother, who I'm, I'm named after, um, because, you know, here was a woman who her husband died uh, very young, and she raised four kids on her own, worked in a factory on 17th Street in Brooklyn. This is the same house that her father's father came and bought from Italy. My mother grew up in that house. So my mother's, my mother's ancestors came here uh, early in 1896, the Morialis, and they came and they built, they built a life um, by buying this house on 17th Street and then passed it down. My mother grew up there. My grandmother, uh, Rosalia, was an incredible matriarch of the family. I'd love to interview her to talk so much about the way she thought about things you know, how she raised my mother, because my mother is such a special woman. Um, I'd, I'd love to interview my grandfather, too, my grandfather Carmine. I mean, you, I, I could just only imagine what it took for him to leave a place that he knew so well in Italy, um, in Naples, and decide, well, I'm going to leave this neighborhood and this, these people, my family, my friends that I know so well, and get on a ship and go to America for the promise of opportunity to create a better situation for his family and, and, and his family and so on. I mean, that really is the story of my life. I know it's the story of yeah. so many Americans, but, you know, he was 19 years old, my grandfather, and he came here in 19 years old, $12 in his pocket. And first thing he did was go fight in World War I. Yeah. And the things he couldn't have known that his, his son, he and his son would build this you know, iconic business. His granddaughter would report from the floor of the stock exchange 
on one hand, but on the other hand, he would lose his son. He'd become a gold star parent. So you think it's, it's complex, and there are, there are you know, powerful opportunities that are seized, and there are losses, and that's what makes family and makes history so interesting to study those, kind of the, those complexities. And now we're in this pandemic, and it's another moment of challenge in New York. And I was wondering, are you hopeful for New York? And what do you draw from in terms of strength from your family story and from New York story uh, to, get, to get you through and to, and, and to inspire us to get through this current crisis that we're in? Well, look, I think we always have to remember that, you know, we will always, always be thrown curveballs. And um, that has been the case in my life. It's going to continue to be the case in all of our lives. It's really not about the curveball, but it's about how you handle it, how you catch it. And I think that right now we're all trying to better understand how we're handling this. And I think that, you know, um, this was this was a game changer. This was a real curveball. Nobody saw this coming. And, you know, I would draw on my strength from my family, draw on my, uh, my, my vision and understanding of how hard it was for my family to get through all of the challenges that they faced. And you know that there were many. I mean, they were cramped on that ship coming to America. So many people on top of each other. There had to be sickness and, you know, there had to be so much to get through. You have to remember the kind of obstacles that many of our ancestors and our friends have seen before and gotten through and somehow get that strength tap into that strength and recognize that you have to fight to get through this. I'm, I'm not a quitter and um, I'm a fighter. I've always been that way. I've always been one to believe, really believe that I can control my own destiny and I can control my own fate by my actions. And I think that we all have to remember that in all situations of you know, uncertainty and challenge, that it is in us to control our fate. It was notable to me that of all people, Maria most wished she could interview her grandparents. Instead of trailblazers in business, it was the trailblazers in her own family. Now, from the outside, it might not be apparent how they paved the way for her to become a trailblazer too. But when you look deeper, they're bound together by the determination to do something different bold and difficult, leaving behind the familiar and the safe for the unknown, taking a chance on the long odds, the big bet. The immigrant who crossed an ocean, the strong woman, the namesake, who was the link to other strong women, Maria's mother and herself. It was that long view of things that took me to my last question. So I like to end every interview by quoting my favorite New York poet, who is Walt Whitman. And in his iconic 1855 book of poems, Leaves of Grass, he writes this, and I wanted to ask a question coming off it. So let me read this first, and then, then I'll describe it to you. I depart as air. I shake my white locks as the runway sun. I fuse my flesh in eddies and drift in its lacy jags. I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. 
failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere, waiting for you. And when I think about that poem, I think about the idea of being able to commune with people from the past, and how we can draw strength from them. And 50, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, Maria, if someone discovers the story of Maria Bartiromo of New York and wants to commune with you and kind of retrace your footsteps and go to a place in New York to find you, that's kind of a place in the city where you really feel was, was foundational and, and defined who you are, where should they look for you in New York, in your hometown, um, your spirit? I guess look for me at the beach. I like walking on the beach and I like riding my bike near the beach. That mm. is where I have peace. Mm. It's not where I will be working hard. I am now because I'm at work all the time. But I mean, it's not like the busy work hard, you know, yeah. backdrop of New York, but it's certainly where I might yeah. be finding peace at that moment. Maria Bartiromo, thank you so much for taking me to your hometown. Thank you so much. And this was such a delight. I, I, again, I, I'm so grateful that you did all that work on my family. Thank you. Your Hometown is a Kevin Burke production. For more, please visit our website at yourhometown.org, where you can listen to past episodes and find our show notes and artwork for each guest. You can also follow us wherever podcasts are available and on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, please look up the show's New York City series page, including information on live events on the museum at the City of New York's website at mcny.org slash yourhometown hyphen podcast. Now, I'd like to thank the sensational team that works with me each week on Your Hometown, beginning with our executive producer, the great Robert Krulwich, our art director, Nick Gregg, editor and sound designer, Otis Streeter, composer and performer, Sterling Steffen, wow, he's good, and our researcher, the brilliant Shaquille Khan. I also want to thank my wife, Anna, for her insights as always. Our branding website design is by Tama Creative. A special thanks, too, to our partners this season, the Museum of the City of New York. And I also can't thank enough the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and our other financial supporters for their deep belief in this series. Until next time, thanks so much for taking this ride with me. And remember, everyone's from someplace and everywhere is somewhere.